Hello and welcome to Prepublished. I'm Sophia Bennett. Amanda Craig is a novelist and journalist. Her ninth novel, The Golden Rule, was long-listed for the Women's Prize for Fiction 2021 and was listed by the National Papers as one of the books of the year. Like her other work, it's contemporary fiction looking at class, gender politics and the urban-rural divide. I first encountered Amanda when she was children's book critic for The Times and was a judge on The Times Chicken House competition that won me my first book contract for Threads. As a journalist and reviewer, she's been a huge champion of what she calls the third golden age of children's literature, spotting Harry Potter, his dark materials and The Hunger Games in their early days. I was keen to find out about her own writing process. We also discussed the hard truths about sustaining yourself as a novelist, the importance, as always, of libraries, and what it is that makes a busy book reviewer sit up and take notice of a new fiction title. We recorded this episode in May 2021. I hope you enjoy our conversation. Hello, Amanda, and welcome to Prepublished. Hello, Sophia. Thank you so much for inviting me. Uh, this is the second time we've done this, and hopefully it will work this time. Um, technical gremlins last time, but yeah. I'm really, really glad to be talking to you again. Yes, me too. I usually start by asking where my guest is, given that we're not always together. Um, so can you ah. describe a little bit where you're talking to me from? I'm talking to you from my home in Devon, which uh, at the moment is looking out onto horizontal rain because of the wind that regularly lashes us. Um, and I'm talking from the sitting room of the um, house, which is a, what is it? It's a, it's an 18th century long house, um, very, very low ceiling, very cosy. Um, and it's full of things like red lamps to cheer up the dreariness <laughs> of, of the very sodden green landscape, which normally I love, but at the moment is not particularly appealing. And and is this your writing space that you're sitting in now? Yeah, well, it's one of my writing spaces. There's actually a very nice um, study next door, but my husband is occupying that, doing um, a very um, interesting project, beating up on one of these internet giants. Um, so I'm relegated to the second space, which is very cold. Um, I, I only really like writing when I'm quite cold which oh, sounds a bit paradoxical. Warm feet, yeah. but everything else has got to be really almost freezing. So um, quite good to sit in an old house. In that. Do you ever move around the house? I find I do that here. I have different points of the day. I, I like the light in different places. No, I, I just do what Kingsley Amos said you should do, which is to glue my bottom ever expanding to, to my seat. And I just work and work and work and work until you know, the pain in my feet means I've got to get up or the dog comes and interrupts me. The dogs, dogs are crucial because they, they must be walked at least twice a day. Um, and my lovely cavalier, King Charles Spaniel, comes and reminds me to get up and move. And so we go off for a huge long hike. Um, but otherwise, now I'm just sitting and working. It's interesting. That, that, that really leads me in, um, nicely to sort of my observation, which is you're one of the few guests I have who is a sort of full-time professional writer, um, oh. because most of the people I talk to have a day job, um, yeah. be it teaching or something else. Um, obviously, you're a critic as well. But, well, but not very the much these days. Most of the time I'm I'm writing. I mean, I'm tremendously busy do, doing lots of other things as well. Um, but yes, I am incredibly lucky um, because 
you know, I had a day job for many, many years, which was being a journalist. Um, you don't really make any money as a critic, but um, in, I, you know, I'm the generation that was lucky enough to get into journalism um, when journalism really paid quite well. I mean, you could, you could get a home, you could get a, well, you could get a mortgage, not a, not a home, but, um, and really by the time um, I uh, couldn't really carry on with that, um, partly because I got very ill and had cancer, um, my husband was able to support us both. And that's something I give thanks for every day. Um, although, of course, um, it does mean that, you know, I have this very paradoxical life of um, basically earning as little as most authors of literary fiction earn, which is um, below the minimum wage, but being able to yes. live a perfectly comfortable life. Um, you know, I'm, I'm, I do believe in being frank about this because so many people um, either are, are not lucky in that way, and I wish they were, um, or pretend that um, what enables them to write is is something else um, you know it, it really is as, as you yourself know Sophia I mean it, you know it, it, it is a vow of kind of well not chastity but poverty <laughs> if you want it to is. become a writer and I, I do feel quite time. militant about it because yeah. um, it seems to be expected of us really these days that we do it as a hobby most of the time oh. we're not paid usually enough money to live on and and that means that so many great writers can't be writers I assume you know they're just their, their books are not on the shelves because they can't afford to write them I mean one of my <laughs> large pieces of advice to aspiring writers is have something else up your sleeve to keep yeah. you going um, because you'll probably need it as of course Barry Cunningham said to JK Rowling and that turned out not to be essential <laughs> advice but usually it is but she's a phenomenon in so many ways you know it is it, you know and and unfortunately um you know, she, she she's taken to be the benchmark for all writers. I mean, all, you know, people think, oh, you're an author, you must be as rich as Rowling. You know, it's it's, it's mortifying for everybody. Yeah, yeah. She is the absolute exception. Yeah. 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 Um, so what are you writing at the moment? I'm sure you won't want to talk much about work in progress, but... but oh, no, um, no, no, what, I'm always happy to talk. What stage are you at? It's always better <laughs> to talk thing. than to write. Um, I am halfway through a new novel, which is about um, three old ladies, old old friends who have who are on their last adventure. They're, they're, they're in their 80s and they've all up sticks to live in a small or near a small uh, Tuscan hill town um, and they get embroiled well there, there's sort of two plot strands one is about the wedding of the eldest grandchild of one of them uh, and the other is about uh, people trafficking mm. which is a subject I have addressed before in a novel called Hearts and Minds but yeah. um, it's particularly interesting with an Italian spin on it because Italy is pretty much in the front line of all the uh, illegal immigration from North Africa. Yes. And it's causing huge social tensions and uh, moral dilemmas because, you know, Italians are, I think, a particularly kind and generous 
nation and people um, and they are um, you know also many of them quite religious and they see it as their duty to help other people and yet they're getting thousands and thousands of people turning up in boats um, and you know asking for for help you know for food for jobs for accommodation yeah. and um yeah so it's causing a tremendous crisis and it's spilling over all over Italy because the borders have been closed you know before a lot of these immigrants would come and because uh, a lot of them are trying to get to our country of course and they'd wash up in France and try and cross the channel but um attitudes have hardened increasingly so all that is being stopped and um the Italians are getting more and more upset and angry and frightened about this and I suppose one of the triggers I always have a trigger all my novels are set in the contemporary time one of the triggers for this was learning that um, uh, this lovely chap who helped my aged mother who's still alive age 93 but who's lived most of her life in Italy and um, he told us that he was teaching the local citizens of his town how to shoot because they literally are terrified um, of being overwhelmed by um, these illegals. And I immediately pricked up my ears when I heard this because, you know, what, what always interests me, because my novels are both literary novels and um, thrillers, sometimes detective novels, but they always have an element of, you know, drama and high risk and very often murder in them. Um, and I thought, oh, this would this this is definitely something I want to write about. Um, I know from your last two novels, as you say, that you really do address contemporary themes, and Brexit has been mm -hmm. a big one, and the mm -hmm. the rural country um, town divide has been another big one. Mm -hmm. um, and um, well, the Golden Rule, the last one, was long listed for the Women's Prize. And I wanted to talk to you a little bit about your inspirations for that. So um, that was set here. Um, yes. And and what was the, the sort of the launch point for, for that one? Well, the Golden Rule really grew out of my research on divorce and adultery and betrayal for The Lie of the Land, its predecessor. The Lie of the Land set in Devon and The Golden Rule is set in Cornwall. Um but it's you could say it's a sort of it's not a trilogy but it's a you know it's a, this interest in the west country because i live here most of the time now um and when i turned 50 and my various uh, close girlfriends turned 50 almost all of them not me luckily um discovered that their husbands had been unfaithful and um, it was an absolute crisis, you know, I couldn't believe it. One after another, these these lovely women who I, you know, am deeply fond of and, and think of as, as, you know, beautiful and wonderful and fascinating uh, and, and guiltless, you know, discovered that they were through no fault of their own, as far as one could see, um, not just losing their husbands, but, um, in many cases being forced to sell their home if they had one you know it, just, it was absolute catastrophe and crisis and um that one after another 
they said to me that the pain um, and chaos of divorce was such that it would be easier to be a widow. And when the third one said this to me, I thought, <laughs> yes. well, you know, I, I mean, one of them, I was so angry that I actually said, well, why don't you kill him? I feel like killing him myself. You know, it was an absolute kind of passion of fury and indignation. And I suddenly thought that is a plot. And immediately the um, plot of Patricia Highsmith's classic um, that Alfred Hitchcock turned into a famous film, Strangers on a Train, popped into my head. And I thought, well, what if two women met each other and they were both very unhappily married uh, and they agreed to swap murders? Um, and then, of course, because that is set on a train, I thought of the train journey I know best, which is the Paddington to Penzance train from, from London to Cornwall. And it all just sort of, you know, grew almost in an instant, the way that, you know, the, the happiest books do. And I'm really curious about your writing process, because as you say, you, you know, you, you write these contemporary novels, they've been called State of the Nation novels, so they they can't be kind of too far behind what's going on you can't spend years and years <laughs> thinking about it and yet you know there's a lot in them so I mean you talk about the fact that often um, perhaps even usually in your work a novel comes out of some it's inspired in a way by by an aspect of a previous novel so you've got perhaps mm. some of the characters and some of the thoughts um, yeah. but how long how long do you spend pulling all of these threads together before you start the writing process and how much do you keep going once you have started the writing process um, it's an almost impossible question to answer because I often think about novels for, you know, up to a decade before I sit down and, and write them. Mm. And then once I am writing, it can take years of agony <laughs> and, or it can come almost all at once. Yeah. Um, the golden rule was very fast for me, partly because I had the, the Patricia Highsmith model to keep going back and looking at. Um, How fast was fast? How many months did it take? Well, probably about 18 months, this mm -hmm. one. But that was really fast for me. Um, I've only had that with a couple of other novels. Um, I mean, the thing that to me always takes time is, this, is the psychology and the characters. Um, I um, do spend years thinking about that what sort of person would say this how would they react you know really think I mean I live with my characters you know very much as Trollope to whom I'm sometimes flatteringly compared did you know I, I, I go to sleep thinking about <laughs> yes. them I wake up at three o'clock <laughs> in the morning thinking about them I'm very often very to my family's intense annoyance quite absent-minded because I'm actually having a conversation with somebody entirely imaginary okay, um, I do then yeah yeah no it's a very common um, failing perhaps <laughs> among, among writers um, and I have another kind of layer in a sense of difficulty which is um my whole um, upbringing and, and education was very much um, to do with that um, public school thing, because um, I was sent away to boarding school, of suppressing your emotions and not showing your emotions and um, really kind of almost denying that they existed. So for me to excavate what a normal person would feel, yeah. um, particularly regarding things like fear, and um, anguish and pain and so on 
I sometimes suspect maybe <laughs> slightly harder from than than it is for a lot of other people. Um, you know, I I do get various um, people to read it, and one of the things that's often struck me is that normal people say. Oh, but at this point, he or she would be feeling terribly frightened. And I think, oh, would, <laughs> would they, they? Would they really? <laughs> because I myself, you know, clamp down on that so much. Um, you know, that's that's that is a kind of specific difficulty that I have. But maybe you know, working so hard at thinking about it, and and allowing that feeling to come through is is you know perhaps what one of the things that makes my books work I don't know yes and 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 what about the the drafting process do you do you manage to get most of it into the first draft or does it come in the rewriting process do you think um well I probably rewrite my books about a hundred times um so there is a first draft before the sort of 99th draft um and the first draft is absolutely appalling I mean my lovely editor Richard Bezik at Little Brown has has learned not to panic if I show him a first draft because he knows that you know it really is just a first draft and there are all sorts of things that will come right right um but I think because I'm an ardent believer in plot um and I always think that story is king and you must get that right there is this huge push at work to get the story done to get the momentum to get that that thing that makes someone want to pick up the book and want to keep reading so that is like this great um you know dynamo that I've got to get going and then um the thing that makes me rewrite it 99 times is everything else particularly the style and the voice and um you know, I, I, I do have a style, apparently, but um, what I'm always trying to do is make something as both as lucid and as aesthetically pleasing as I can without stopping the plot. So that's a lot of things to try and get right. Um, but I do think that a lot of the time when books don't work, it is because people have not gone through the anguish of making the 99th pass at the actual writing. And you have to do so many things for that, not least just reading aloud what you've written. Yeah. Because, you know, <laughs> often when you when you read something aloud, you know, that something that a sentence that doesn't flow or the wrong word becomes painfully apparent. I mean, I've, you know, having said which, I've many times had the experience of reading something aloud at a literary festival and thinking, oh, my God, how could I possibly have not <laughs> seen that word is in the wrong place? Or, yeah, you know, I didn't need that bit. And, you know, what what can one do? It's too late. I, I Funnily enough, I was reading to, to Alex, my husband, yesterday. I was just, just a synopsis. It was seven pages. So I sort of said, you know... Um, I know you love me very much. Please, can you listen to these seven pages? And oh. and I spotted so much. So did he. There were missing words that I would never yeah. have seen because my eye would have absolutely told yeah. me that they were yes. there. Um, yeah. And there were sort of strange homonyms that didn't sound right. And yes, weird things that were missing and strange repetitions. And yeah, you can only yeah. 
find all that of that when you, when you read and it it's very strange because it's not even the thing of reading aloud I mean often when I send off and I'm afraid I used to do this even as a journalist which drove my poor editors completely bats you know I'd send off a feature that was going to go into the paper the next day and then I think oh my god that's all wrong and I'd, I'd, I'd sort of send 10 minutes later rewritten <laughs> version say don't look at that look at this you know and you can't you know that there is something about a piece of writing and you know it's going to be made public that is like a blast of cold air and you um you know you have to be careful it's like little little plants you know you have to have to harden off your plants and make sure they won't wilt but you also have to give them that air otherwise they won't be strong I do think that for me, it helps tremendously knowing that I'm going to have to share something with somebody, no yes. matter what it is. Yes. I think yes. it's completely fine. And then the second I, I really do have to press send, I see it in a totally new light. And it's never, ever yeah. good enough. It always needs another polish or two before this that is, moment. This is, this is the eternal, eternal problem. But I do think that people, I mean, I do have um, one or two friends, and I'm afraid they do tend to, to be the not at all successful writers who won't show what they've written to anyone else. And I keep thinking, you know, you're mad because what you want is for as many people as possible to read this. So why not, you know, give it to someone who's offering to read it for you? Yeah. Um, you know, of course, that's that's very rare and usually it's just your friends. But, you know, listen to what they say. Um, you know, I I do read um, the first drafts of, of some friends' works, but I now don't read you know an awful lot of people who've asked me to read it because I know they won't listen you know they won't you know I start to kind of get out my pencil and things and I think this is an absolute waste of my time that all they want to be told is that it's marvelous and that sort of thing those I'm afraid I do think even if they're you know multiply published authors Mm. I do think that they're hobbyists they're not actually proper writers because a proper writer always wants the nitpicking and the criticism not not unkind criticism but you know if someone says this isn't working you must listen because if you don't a whole lot of other people when it's published worst of all critics will point this flaw out too um, so that kind of thing is 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 gold dust. Yeah, I'm I'm always grateful, particularly with obviously writing crime novels now. Is mm. when somebody doesn't understand something, and yeah. I think, well, I think I made that very clear. But if they didn't understand it, it means it could be clearer. So I go back yeah. and I, I yeah. do that, and I'm really glad to be told. Yeah, yeah. And that's because you're a total professional. <laughs> and yeah, no, but you know there are a lot of people, including people with many published novels, who who kind of curiously aren't, and then they you know, wonder why they're not published anymore. You know, it, it, it is you know, an absolutely brutal world that we must survive in now. You know, the, the, I mean, I was first published in 1990 and the difference between the world then and the world now is just, you know, so, so enormous. Um, yeah, it's sad but true, isn't it? Oh, gosh, I try not to share this too much with aspiring writers because because it's kind of it's not wonderful. But I mean, as you know, because you were on mm. the judging panel, um, I was first published in twenty oh nine, two thousand and nine, mm. and um, and 
it was okay, but but everyone was sort of was telling me, you know, it'll get it'll get better and better. The world will will just publishing world will get better and better. And I thought wonderful, and it actually definitely got worse and worse, mm. significantly worse and worse. Advances were lower for everybody, yeah. and and it was harder to get work out there. And the money was it's really interesting because the money was still in the publishing industry. The industry wasn't struggling, but suddenly authors were struggling a lot authors more. And were. I, I've never. Yeah fully understood how that worked but anyway it worked for everybody i think it's a whole lot of things but you know particularly that it took that long really for you know well amazon was was a big part of it and the destruction of the the abandonment of the netbook agreement mm. which was still going when i was first published and that was why you could just about make a living as as an author and now as you know forget it um yeah, no, it is very gloomy and the, it is absolutely appalling the way that so much um, seems to be uh, about whether you're new and, and and you know, young and sexy and all the rest <laughs> of it rather than you actually know what you're doing because you've done it for long enough. Um, you know, one of the pieces I give to writers who have not had such a good time is, look, just change your name. You know, just we're all slaves to this terrible um, piece of computer software that 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 can tell agents and publishers in a flash and booksellers how much your last book sold, and according to that, you know, you will or won't get a deal. You will or won't get a good deal. Um, you know, it may be a totally different book. It may be a very much better book, but you will still have that hung around your neck like an albatross so if you want to continue being published and you're not in a, in a good place now change your name well Escape i yeah this. i mean of course i did a bit and that was yeah. largely <laughs> some of the reasons around it. it was partly changing age group that i was writing for but it was partly that as well because yeah i mean booksellers look at, at how many of your last book they sold and if, if the numbers aren't great then they're not going to do great yeah. things with the next one and on it goes and i remember hearing about madeline wickham um, whose yes. books were doing okay, but not brilliantly. And she was finding it really, really hard, um, undeservedly so, because she was such a talented writer, uh, to get the next one out there. And so she changed her name to Sophie Kinsella. <laughs> and, and, and it all huge. worked out okay. <laughs> and she is by no means the only one. And in fact, there's, there's someone who's coming out next month um, who is called Jane Thin, who wrote a number of, you know, very good thrillers set in, in Nazi Germany um, but you know they never sold particularly well and she had this simply wonderful idea for a uh, counterfactual thriller called Widowland about what Britain would have been like for women had the Nazis uh, invaded Britain yeah um, and it's quite marvellous I highly recommend it um, and she's written it under the name of um is it, is it S.J. Carey? I think it is. Right. Anyway, Carey is the main thing, um, which is a family name. But she she took this decision, and I think it was absolutely the right the right one. Different kind of book, and a fresh start. And it's going to be this summer, this year's huge bestseller. I I predict. How exciting! One thing mm. I I I love about your your work as a sort of a critic and uh, other things that you do is you are very good at bigging up other people's books um and <laughs> well. uh, yeah just just um kind of sharing the love and and net 
enable not just about networking but enabling other people to network enabling women to network i think which we are very bad at on the whole yeah um and do you sort of think that that's been a large part of your writing life as well well it's been an entirely pleasurable part of my life because you know i think most people shouldn't be writers unless they're passionate readers and if i find a writer i think is really good and i love their books why wouldn't i you know say how wonderful i think it is you know it's very very easy now of course with social media but um it's it's entirely fun and i really don't understand why more people don't do this actually because we are part of a community we're not all rivals i mean there's this hideous portrayal of uh writers particularly novelists which i think really comes from america as all competing against each other, all being at each other's throats in this sort of frightful way. Um, and although I have met one or two writers, particularly men, I'm afraid, who are like that, I think that, you know, you can only gain, um, not in a kind of calculating way, but you just become, you know, a bigger, more interesting more warmly befriended person if you if you do this um i mean i know that you know i myself am i'm enormously grateful to the other writers men and women um who've done this for me i never take it for granted i never expect it i mean everybody's terribly busy but we should support each other otherwise what on earth are we doing you know being writing anything but particularly fiction isn't just about standing on a platform and saying me 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 <laughs> but some so people interesting, do Amanda. tend to think <laughs> that it must be well yeah um, i mean I, I sort of think about this in a slightly d- different way i i was very very nervous as a, when i started out as a writer um back in 2009 you know people would would ask me to blurb books and things and and i would think unless i completely wholeheartedly adore it i don't dare you know, I, I don't 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 dare blurb anything because you know what what happens if I say no? Then it will show I don't like it, and I really overthought it, and and I regret that now because um, I think we we should. Um, I mean, you don't, what you don't want to be doing, of course, is just saying fabulous things about all your friends' books because yes. <laughs> that will create sort of Steve, the Stephen King thing. Oh, geez, is that oh, what he does? And sometimes people you you love dearly write books that are absolutely not your kind of thing that you even really dislike and you know you just have to be honest and pass uh, yeah. or sometimes that uh, you literally don't have the time um you know not everybody writes everything you know you that that you're going to like that's you know, so that, true that, that, that's, but, that's but I, I think you're right that if somebody has written something that you like um you part of your platform so, yeah. can and should and it will help you too be about talking about that as well as your own thing because i, I think yeah. that might not occur to us you know as writers we're so desperately just sort of saying to people look at my thing um it, it can feel about a sort of secondary thing to say look at this other person's thing as well but i i notice the people who do that and it is lovely and very generous of them, and well, uh, yeah, it sets up. This you know, I do. I, th- I think. I think. I think it has to be genuine. Yes. I think, it, and I think if you do it in a calculating way, you are stuffed, or you say that you like something because you think it's a politically astute move to make. Yeah, that you know, both you, both, yeah, you know, that, that that's that's so wrong, and it would feel wrong and awful, and it would be a betrayal of other readers as well. You know, readers are also at the absolute heart of what we do. Um, so I never say that. Uh, sometimes I have been 
perhaps a bit over generous if I felt that someone is uh, starting out or I know that they're in a very bad place and they need a bit of help. Um, but I never endorse a book that I think is is awful. Um, you know, most books are a mixture of good <laughs> and bad, of course, yeah. and you try and focus on the good, etc., etc. But um, no, I mean, I do think that we have to be part of a community. Uh, you know, I'm enormously grateful to not just um, readers and people who buy my books, but to this extraordinary culture of book bloggers who are unpaid enthusiasts who get hold of the book when it's in a what's called an ARC. Um, I can't remember what that stands for, advanced but basically like, like an e-book. Advanced reader copy, exactly. And, you know, they read it and some of them are just, you know, reading addicts. Um, but a lot of them are highly knowledgeable and very articulate and very, you know, if they get behind a book, will make all the difference. Mm, yep. And they're fabulous. You know, they do this for pure love. So I very much um, see them as the, the unsung angels <laughs> of our world. Um, but it is a very much more fragile and um, chancy business than it used to be. I think it takes a long time for people to really understand how much uh, industries, and unfortunately this is an industry, change, you know, decades even. Yeah. Um, and it would be good if people really understood that it is better to borrow a book from a library than it is to buy a second-hand copy because when you buy a second-hand copy, the author and indeed the publisher who makes it possible gets absolutely nothing. Um, I've you know, been a very active member of the Society of Authors and I've argued for a long time that just like artists, we should get a percentage of a second-hand book sales mm. um, money because even 10p a copy, even 5p a copy, would make a, a real difference to us. And how much do so, we get from libraries? I've lost track. Is, is it eight I think point something it's, p? I think, I think it's nearly nine p. It's, yeah. it's a tiny amount. But it adds but up, doesn't it? It, it really adds helps. up to several hundred pounds a year, yeah. you know, often. And that, you know, I, I know because I, um, you know, when, particularly when I was ill, I, I ran out of the money that I'd been paid as an advance. And that those few hundred pounds, believe me, made a real difference yeah. to me no, they every do. year. I, I've, you know, I've had it's... the odd reader apologising. I'm sure you have too for borrowing my books from libraries. And like you, no, no, I'm just never apologise. No, libraries are wonderful. You know, firstly, they buy the books yeah. in hardback yeah. and then you get this little bit. And I was one of the people who, I can't remember whether it was 15 or 20 years ago, campaigned for PLR, public lending right, to go up because it really matters. You know, the, the really noble, best-selling authors who don't need the money never draw that money down. They put it back into the pot. Mm. But for a lot of authors, particularly children's authors, actually, that money is the difference between, you know, being able to stay alive and not. Um, not quite alive, because we do, thank God, still have some benefits. But, you know, it's, it's really very marginal whether you can continue for most people yes so uh, absolutely um now amazon marketplace am i right in thinking that is that secondhand book trade effectively isn't it yes 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 so i've always felt very uncomfortable about how easy they make it for people to buy books that we yeah. don't get any income from yeah um, well great. i think if they're things like classics and the author is dead oh yeah 
Um, that's absolutely fine to do that or the most massive bestseller imaginable because they also don't really need the money. Yeah. But for most of us who are what's called mid-list authors, it really does matter. So, yeah, please borrow from a library. <laughs> so... In terms of your your work as a critic, how do you feel about how much space there is for books in newspapers? Um, oh, it's appalling. And on TV, um, of course. Which... And, well, TV is almost non-existent. Um, yes, I mean, that is, again, you know, an absolute swamp. Uh, people don't realise that... Um, very often, you know, these, these things like book clubs that um, mentioning no names that you see hyped up. But the publishers have paid an absolute fortune, even, I mean, you know, at least £30,000 just to be considered for entry into these clubs. Oh yeah, They're, they have to pay money to be put on a table in Waterstones so that people who drop into a bookshop and are idly browsing by will notice it. Um, you know, when authors feel proud of or com more likely ashamed of selling well, um, it's actually nothing to do with the quality of their book. It's entirely to do with how much a publisher has pumped into their publication. I am much more visible now because I am what's called a super lead. And that means that my publisher, Hachette, one of the big five, has actually put money into making me more visible and making me more promoted. Um, you know, I hope my book novels have also got better, but they could be absolute rubbish. And I could name off the top of my head, but I'm too polite, you know, half a dozen books published in the last year that completely don't deserve to be bestsellers, but they have had that money pumped into them and a whole lot of other books. And this is the really awful side of it that should have been brought to much more public attention have not had this. Um, this is one reason why you need to have a, a really good agent, an agent who is basically a warrior who is fighting on your side. If you don't have that, you must find someone else because they're taking their 15%. Um, and those of us who've watched the delightful French series, um, Call My Agent, uh, call my agent <laughs> um, maybe may dimly aware of this, although I'm afraid for books, it's very much less glamorous. Uh, you know, they really do earn that, that percentage. But there are still a number of them that, that really just don't pull their finger out. And if they don't, you must sack them and find someone else. So get, going back to the bookshops, um, Presumably, you in your role as a critic with, were trying to shed light on books that that weren't necessarily super leads, but that were yes, worth all the, the time. I mean, particularly when I was the children's book critic of the Times, which I did love doing. I never, um, as far as I'm aware, take any notice of the hype around a book. In fact, if anything, that just annoys me. I don't read the bookseller quite deliberately. Um, so it, for me, it was just send me everything that you're publishing that you think I might be interested in. And I would also go into bookshops, but by then it's often too late. And I will decide whether I think this is, is good or interesting. And it was because I did that, that I was one of the first people to write about um, J.K. Rowling's Harry Potter series, Philip Pullman, his Dark Materials. I mean, Philip Pullman had been a 
abysmally published, you know, almost concealed from the public, <laughs> um, as, as he himself put it, by uh, Penguin. Um, and uh, Krista Cowell and The Hunger Games. I mean, there were loads of things that I was fortuitously in a, in a position to make a fuss about mm -hmm. and to help, um, which usually had, you know, almost no marketing put behind them at all. It was just, as it were, the equivalent of the slush pile. Um, and I'd get something like 100 children's books delivered to me a week. Oh my I mean, goodness. I was just drowning in books. But somehow I could find these nuggets. And that was one of the things that made it so worth doing. I mean, now again, um, it's very much changed because publishers have realized that this is one of the most profitable areas of publishing if they get it right. So now there are these marketing campaigns. They still irritate me beyond endurance. In fact, if I get a book that's sent with a you know nice shiny sheet of publicity material, I'm far more likely to put it in, in the recycling oh, bin no. than if I get sent, you know, just a, you know, a plain, humble book and I open it and I immediately want to read more. You know, that, that's what I'm always looking for, whether it's for adults or for children. Does it tell a really good story? Am I, is this, does it have that kind of magical voice that makes me believe that I am going to feel things and think things and see things that I wasn't thinking before. Oh, I like um, that. That so my, my last question for you was 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 going to be what is it about a book that lands out of its brown envelope on your desk that makes you want to give it attention? And is it the voice? Is that what you're looking for more than anything? It's it's the voice and the promise of the story. It's it's not the jacket. Um, things like, for instance, The Hunger Games had one of the worst jackets that I think I've seen in a very long time in its earliest incarnations. Uh, a good jacket does help there somewhat. Uh, yes, it's the voice, and it it just it it's just when you open a book. It's always the words, you know. You open a book, and it just kind of sings to you. And, and you want to go on listening to that siren voice. Um, I mean, I'm someone who, because I love reading so much, you know, I often read when the television is on in the evening and, and my family are watching something, you know, that they think is terribly interesting. It's got to be really earth shattering <laughs> for me to lift my eyes yeah. from a book and watch the screen instead. Um, yeah, that is one of my few superpowers, you might say. But, um, you know, that is created, of course, by by the writer, that, that, that pull, that magnetism. And it takes, as I know, being a writer myself, it takes huge amounts of energy and effort and talent to get that pitch right. I mean, very often when I myself am doing the, the 99th rewrite, it's just, it's like tuning a radio, it's, it's making sure that you're exactly on that wavelength. Of course, people nowadays don't tune radios, <laughs> just, they just press buttons. But in the old days, when you had to fiddle yep. with the dial, that's a bit like what it is. But when you get that sound, you just follow it to the ends of the earth. You know, you just, you just want it not to stop. Um, and it is, I think, a form of magic. You know, it's 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 it is a kind of spell. Um, 
you know whether whether you're describing George Smiley and and his efforts to unmask spies or whether you're describing a boy wizard and living in a cupboard under a stairs or you know anything you could possibly think of everything is a story if it's done right including of course non-fiction which we haven't touched on um it's it's been one of the great battles of my life to put stories and storytelling back at the center of our literature and our cultural life there's been this um really quite awful oppressive culture which dominates things like i'm afraid um prize lists particularly which has tried to deny story which has decried it as something that is vulgar and formulaic uh, and you know fit only for airport thrillers um, whereas I can see very clearly as a as a serious student of literature that the novels that survive down the decades down the centuries are always those that combine the aesthetic pleasure of reading and and style with story you must have story if you don't have that you will deservedly die <laughs> and be utterly obscure even within your lifetime. It appalls me that this kind of book, whether you call it novelist, um, modernist or experimental or whatever, continues to be vaunted by people, uh, you know, I'm afraid particularly people who've studied English literature at, at university and they, they still think that this is something new and exciting. No, it's not. It's over a hundred years old. It's deeply dull. It can't be re retired soon enough. <laughs> well, I think with <laughs> with that, um, um, I love the, your um, your description of good writing as a spell. Um, I think that's a wonderful thing to to leave listeners with. So, thank you so much for talking to me today. Thank you so much for talking to me, Safar, <laughs> you know, as, as a wonderful storyteller and writer yourself. It's been an absolute pleasure. I know that you understand all the things I'm describing only too well, but it's lovely. And I hope listeners have enjoyed it too. Thank you. I'd like to thank Christopher Pett for editing and producing this episode of Prepublished. You can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And if you've enjoyed this episode, please leave us a review. You can also join us on Twitter at Prepub Podcast and find me at my children's books website, which is sophiabennett.com, or my adult crime series website, which is sjbennettbooks.com. <laughs>